Let's begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Our Lord, we thank you for this book, for this book that you have inspired, the letter to the Hebrews. We thank you for this anonymous author who has such great insight and depth into your truth by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray now that you would bless and keep us as we turn to this word, that we may guard it with our hearts and our minds, and that to you will be the glory now and forever. Amen. Well, we are coming to the conclusion of the great Hall of Faith, as I've heard it called, not Hall of Fame, Hall of Faith chapter. It comes to a crescendo in many ways in this final section that we'll be looking at today, just eight verses. A few Old Testament heroes are named very quickly, boom, 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 but then we hear of the accomplishments of just an untold number of nameless followers of God. Throughout the passage, as we have heard for the past two weeks, well, really, we didn't really have Sunday school last Sunday. We, we had a conversation amongst ourselves because of the snow and time change. We were down in numbers, and so we just kind of talked last week. Um, but the two weeks prior to that, Father Ted gave us an excellent study um, of the first portion of this chapter. And it was an emphasis in, in what I would say on faith working through obedience. Father Ted's um, mantra or antiphon through his lesson was, what's the highest form of worship? And the answer is obedience. 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 Yes. Take that with you. No one has just blind or mere faith. That doesn't exist according to scripture. Even the demons believe and they shudder, right? Faith is uh, the faith that is praised in these individuals is a living and working faith that encompasses the entirety of one's thoughts, words, and deeds. Faith working in love as Paul's uh, phrase is, I believe that's in Galatians, faith working through love. You can correct me if you know. Faith working through love. And then, of course, St. James famously says, faith without works is dead. What he means is to just give lip service to something is not true faith. Biblical faith is N.T. Wright, the Anglican bishop and scholar, says maybe a great word we could use is allegiance. Think of your faith as allegiance to God. What does it mean to have allegiance to someone? I think of the old, um, I, like, I like the Middle Ages, other than, you know, dying early and dysentery, were a wonderful time. And I like the idea of knights, you know, swearing their allegiance to their Lord. And what does that mean? It doesn't just mean, hey, I really like you and I believe in what you're doing. It means I'll give you my life. I'll go and fight. I'll do what you ask me to do, sire. Allegiance. Our faith is allegiance, which is a, a trust a belief as well as a commitment to action. Oh, yes? It's like Don Quixote. Don Quixote, that's right, an allegiance. Now, now he's kind of insane, but yeah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Insane it's faith. A great there we go. Example. All right, let's read. Let's read Hebrew. Who would like to read? Um, let's, we're going to actually back up a little because it's going to help give us context. Would someone just read verses 30 through 40? Anybody? By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, 
stop the mouths of lions, quench the violence of fire, escape the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed battered in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Beautiful. That's a beautiful passage. I'm just going to go ahead and apologize. I already have like chronic allergies, but now that the trees are blooming... Uh, nature is assaulting assaulting me, so <clears throat> my throat is just dying. Um, say it again? That's very true. It wouldn't be an issue in Minnesota. I would have many other issues, though. So I will I will take I will take my uh, southern allergies. As I, I knew many, um, uh, for example, my my aunt. She moved from I think she was born in Wisconsin. And she, she said, I, she moved here when she was a young adult. She said, I didn't even know I had allergies until I moved to Tennessee. And she lives in Chattanooga, my uncle. So anyway, so we begin by uh, revisiting verses 30 through 31. And that's because it kind of sets the stage. Father Ted talked about these at the end of his lesson. But recall that the author has been working through salvation history, salvation history and highlighting heroes of the faith. He ended with the conquest of the Holy Land. Uh, as a high point, particularly epitomized in Jericho, the fall of Jericho, and the great faith of the harlot Rahab. The writer is revealing that the great faith of Abraham is not something confined to that great saint alone, but can be passed along to his children, both physical, think of Israel walking around Jericho in faith to conquer the Holy Land, and also spiritual, Rahab, is the first convert that we read of by name to Israel in the Holy Land and the only Gentile mentioned in this list of heroes. Now, there's people mentioned before Abraham, Noah, and such. They're te- I guess they're gen- you, what's a Gentile? Someone who's not from the descendant of Abraham. So you can't technically be a Gentile before Abraham was, had children and was born. But after Abraham, the only Gentile listed is Rahab. And just to think that she's not just a Gentile, she's a prostitute. And it's just an incredible amount of redemption and faith. And so that's the emphasis is Abraham is this pinnacle of faith in God and trust in his obedience, trusting in him through obedience. And that is then passed on and participated in and lived out in his children, both physical and spiritual. And that's a big point in the writer of Hebrews and in the New Testament. Why? Because the question being asked in the early church is, who are the children of Abraham? What does it mean to be a Jew? I mean, this radical reorganizing of the world has taken place in Jesus Christ. And the, draw, and the lines in the sand have been redrawn. To be Jewish is not necessarily to be on the side of God anymore. You can be a Gentile. It's to be in Jesus Christ, the true Jew, 
the full Israel. So that would be, that's, what, that's kind of what's underlying here. And that would be important for this congregation that is probably mostly, if not all, Jewish, Israelite, living in diaspora, meaning being dispersed out in Rome. But there might be some Gentiles among them. For them to see that the true inheritance of Israel and of Abraham is faith, not foregoing pork and being circumcised. Though those could be important elements. So this brings the writer then to what I, what I love that our commentator calls a rhetorical catching of the breath. What more shall I say? It's almost just a hands thrown up and says, do you really need more examples? I mean, time could not go. I mean, just don't have enough time to tell of all the wonderful things. Recall that the list of examples for the past 31 verses has been to prove his claim that faith is the realization of what is hoped for and evidence of things not seen. If you go back to the very first verse, Mm -hmm. that was kind of his defining point. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good report, by it, by it, by it. And so all of these examples, this great hall of faith has been to prove his definition of faith. Substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. He believes that he has more than sufficiently shown this to be true. Even still, he has more examples he wants to share, but time, he says, constrains him. And so, and probably also uh, space, paper was really expensive back then. They didn't even have, it wasn't probably even what we think of as paper. It was parchment or vellum, which was, anybody know what vellum is? It's real thick stuff. You know what it's made out of? Yeah, it's it's lambskin, normally lambskin. That's, that's pressed and pushed. So it's leather. It's super expensive, super expensive. So scrolls were super expensive. Um, and so when he says, time would not tell me, it's probably shorthand for saying, I'm running out of scroll and I don't have money to buy another one. So, <clears throat> which is, I mean, it's life, right? It's life. These are real people dealing with real issues. Um, but he says it constrains him. And so he will sprint through the list of names, a sign that his audience is very well versed in their Old Testament history, right? He just kind of sprints through these names without giving a lot of context, whereas we might go, now, who is this person? Who is this again? They, they would have been very familiar. Yet again, another sign that they're probably a Jewish audience having been raised and steeped in this tradition. Yeah, Scott? Geographically, can you remind us where these people were? They're in Rome. They are. That's the assumption, and that's probably the best evidence we have is Rome. And it'll be some things that we, the biggest evidence comes actually at the end of the book. We'll get to it. Uh, some comments he makes, makes will make us, and all scholars think they're in Rome. So, but Jews in Rome. So the Jews had been in diaspora for a long time, mainly at different periods they had been sent out. But we know that Rome had a big Jewish population. Alexandria, which was in Egypt, had a big Jewish population. Uh, some places in modern day Turkey had big Jewish populations. And what the early church saw was it had been God's great will to disperse them from Israel. Who would have thought? I mean, this is the Holy Land because that is what set up for the church to spread. The, the synagogues converted and became Christian, some of them. Then Gentiles were brought in, and then it was already established. God's religion was already established across the Roman Empire. Pretty cool, right? They think they had synagogues as far as Spain. Yes. One of the only countries that probably didn't have a synagogue in what we would have known as the known world, the, uh, the empire, was, was the British Isles. The British Isles were the redneck backwoods of the Roman Empire. Like there, you can read writings of... of uh, not quite that. It was more like they'll kill you in an instant. And so the Celts were considered wild people. 
the, um, the Britons, they weren't technically British at this point, the Britons were, um, yeah, they were, just, they were just considered uneducated and back in the woods. Anyway, very interesting. Barbarians, barbarians of the nth degree. And then they get taken over by the Vikings, which that's even more barbaric. And then you have the, well, the Anglo-Saxons and the Vikings. Anyway, we won't go into mythical history. So, and then the rings destroyed, it's great. So we have, um, <clears throat> he believes this. So the, the, the list of names is a smattering of people that represents more biblical heroes. They are not necessarily in chronological order, or is it an exhaustive list? So we just have to kind of chalk this up to him being, he's just pulling things out of his mind maybe. And there's a reason to it, but maybe, maybe if we read too much into the reason, we might go, huh, this is not, why did he include this person, not this person? We don't know. Gideon, the great story of Gideon. I love the story of Gideon. Judges 6 is through 8. He's known for defeating the invading army of Midianites with a minuscule crew of 300 men. You recall this story? This is where, you know, only those who don't drink like dogs but pull the water up to their mouth, that's who gets to go and do the fight. And then how do they fight? They have fire or torches that are in clay pots, and then they smash the clay pots as they're surrounding kind of the ridge with the Midianites, and they yell and scream and blow horns, and it confuses the Midianites, and, it's, and they start killing each other. It's like, this, this is a wild story. It's a fun story. The sword of the Lord and Gideon. The sword of the Lord and Gideon. And then, and that's why I say they, they smash jars and blue horns to confuse the enemy. But then what does Gideon do after this incredible defeat? What? We read that he actually, later in his life, erects an altar to false gods and builds uh, an ephod which is the priestly breastplate. He sets himself up as a high priest. The end of his life is, is not great. I mean, he, he kind of goes idolatrous. But here he is in the, um, in the Hall of Faith. Barak, this is, this is where our former president's name comes from, Barak. It really is. That's, that's yeah. it. Interesting person to name your son after. Judges 4 through 5, he was summoned by Deborah, to, Deborah the judge uh, to engage in battle against the Canaanites a force that was superior in numbers and in technology, we read. I mean, they didn't have, like, smartphones, but they had chariots, which was a huge technology. Through his faith in God's word spoken through Deborah, he fought despite the odds and won. Samson, I find this one interesting that he ends up on the list. Samson is not a nice man, not a good man, but he ends well. Judges 13 through 16, this brash and brutish judge of Israel destroyed the temple of Baal along with the nobility of the Philistines through God-given supernatural strength. So I, I, I don't mean this to be offensive. It doesn't, it's not a comment on his policy, but the personality of Samson reminds me of the personality of Donald Trump. He's like loud and brash and a womanizer and he just says what he thinks and he does and he doesn't care what other people think. But then at the end of his life, there's this redemptive moment where actually of all the judges, I think you see Christological typology, meaning Samson foreshadows the work of Jesus in a way that the other judges don't. I mean, there he is in the temple of Bel. Dagon. Of da is it Dagon? I thought Dagon. it was Bel. Dagon. Oh, yeah, Dagon's the um, fish. The fish god. Yes, that's right. Bel. That's right. Bel is Canaanite. Dagon is Philistine. You're right. He's in the temple of Dagon. And it's this, you know, so it's this evil, oppressive spiritual power. And what does he do? He stretches his, it says very clearly, he puts his hand on one column and his hand on the other. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, so he has his arm stretched out like a cross, he pushes it down and he sacrifices himself that the temple of demons, the prince of the power of the air, might fall. It's, it's very, I mean, it's very odd because it's almost like suicide. But, hey, come in. Come on in, Joseph. Hey. 
Come in, come in. So I just see in, um, I just see in, judge, in, in Samson this incredible, um, incredible image of, of what Jesus has done. But he's also just this not very holy person the first part of his life. And I think that's very incredible then that he ends up in the hall of faith. Just a good sign for all of us that faith covers a multitude of sins. It covers all the sins. Then we move on to Jephthah. I'll be honest, if you would have said to me, Jephthah, Hall of Faith, I would have been like, sure, great, yeah. Judges 11, even though he vanquished the Ammonites, his victory is usually overshadowed by his rash vow to sacrifice his daughter. Oh, yes, I remember that story, right? He's the one who says, Lord, if you give me victory, the first thing that comes out of my door when I return, I'll sacrifice. And people are like, why would he say that? That's because he probably lived in a cave and there were animals. Animals would have lived and been in the caves to keep people warm. And think of uh, our Lord was probably not born in a stall, but in a cave. And that's why animals would have been there, because there was animals in caves often. They would have been at the front, and then you would have been in the back. So, here, Joseph, here's some notes for Holland. Actually, I put some notes on Holland. There you go. And you can sit wherever you like. And there's coffee in the back. Um, And so, very rash vow. Now, Bible scholars actually debate whether he did sacrifice his daughter. It seems to be that maybe... He did, maybe he didn't, but that's a different story. Maybe he fell through on the vow, but she did definitely then went and lived by herself. I don't know. She went and mourned her, mourned her life. She definitely lived kind of a life of solitude afterwards if she didn't die. David, we all know David. Much can be said about this great king and man after God's own heart. Even though he sinned grievously against the Lord through adultery and murder, he repented, remained faithful, and by obedience to God, united the tribes of Israel under one monarchy— established Jerusalem as the holy city, and founded the royal dynasty from which the Messiah would spring. The writer of Hebrews calls David a prophet, which is probably in reference to the many psalms he wrote that looked forward to the Messiah, two of which have figured prominently in Hebrews thus far, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. And then, of course, Samuel, this great man was the last of the judges. Even though he's not in the book of Judges, he's actually the last of the judges. And he was the prophet who anointed the first king of Israel. He's the last of the judges and the first prophet of Israel. He is the scene between the two. After his ministry, Israel had a long line of prophets who boldly proclaimed God's word and continually called people back to faith in God's covenant and law. So that's kind of the smattering of people that they list, that he lists. Now in verses 33 through 35, the author lists some fantastic feats accomplished by faith. There's three successes, three great escapes, and three military exploits. Those who conquered kingdoms, so if you look, let's just look real quick, 33, because it kind of goes really quick. This is chapter 11, 33 through 35. Who, through faith, subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now those who conquered kingdoms included Joshua, the judges already mentioned, and of course David. Those who did what was righteous may refer to either personal integrity of the people listed thus far, or to governing the nation of Israel according to the law. That is, that would have been an Old Testament or scenario of righteousness. You do what God's law says. 
in which case Joshua, David, and Samuel definitely stand out. They're, they might be some of the only ones who really rule God's people in that previous list according to righteousness. This group also obtained promises, meaning they saw the promises of God fulfilled. This applies to nearly everyone in this chapter, as well as countless others in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of stories of God promising things, and those promises through many trials, tribulations, waiting, them coming true. Now, among, um, among the great escapes mentioned, Daniel is referenced as, you know, he's the one Close the mouths of lions. That's a great story. We learn it probably in Sunday school, but it's a, it's a really good story for us um, as adults because what is the story? The story is that they wanted to get rid of Daniel. The other, there was a conspiracy to get rid of him because he had risen so high in King Nebuchadnezzar's court, and they didn't like him. And how did they get rid of him? They told the king to pass a decree that you may only pray to the king or to his God. And... Daniel heard the decree and still three times a day went to his room, faced Jerusalem and prayed. And what ended up happening? He was thrown into the, into the pit with the lions and the lions' mouths were shut. So it's a huge testament to just... So did that you, on him instead? Say it again? Did that on him Well, it doesn't say that. But what it does say, it, what, it, what the story does teach us is our commitment to God above above the culture, which is a huge message. It'll come in, I guess, our, the sermon this morning as well. And then that relates even more to the next one. Those who put out raging fires are the three young men sentenced to death by burning by the same king, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, which is Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, which, let's see, what would be, that's their Babylonian names. That's what, I can't. They had, uh, they had Hebrew names. Yeah, what are they? Um, I don't remember. It's. <laughs> We remember those. Those are easier and more fun to say. It's like Mishael, Azazel. I don't know. They're hard. What a classic and powerful example of faith. Because this is their, here's their quote. Here's their quote, which I think is great. It's a very similar idea. The king erects a large, uh, erects a large idol and requires everyone to bow down to it. And they refuse to bow down because they're, they're Jews in exile. They're God followers in exile. We are God followers in exile in our culture and more so every day. And what do they say when the king brings them to court? He says, just bow down, just fall down and you can live. He says, if it, or, or else we will throw you in the fiery furnace. And he says, if it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But this is the best part. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Our God can deliver us, and he probably will. But if not, you're still not going to get our worship and veneration. If he wants us to die, we'll die. What an incredible testament to, to faith and something that the early Christians embodied so much. Just burn the incense to Caesar. Say one prayer to Caesar, and I'll let you go. No, our God will deliver us. But if not, even still, we won't worship Caesar. Now, those who escaped the devouring sword could refer to many people, but here are some that come to mind. Elijah, Elisha, David, Jeremiah, and then there's hundreds of people in Jerusalem at various times when enemies would besiege the city. Living in Jerusalem in the Old Testament would not have been fun. It was constantly war, constantly battle, constantly plague. Oh, it has been rough. Now, point seven, out of weakness, they were made powerful. This phrase might refer to valiant women in the Old Testament. 
Since that is where the idea concludes in verse 35, we can think of Jael, who's in Judges 4, who slew the great enemy, Sisera. This is, you know how she slew him? This is the tent peg through his head. Great story. Or we can think of Judith in the book of Judith, who cut off the head of the enemy, Holofernes. Holofernes. I don't know. You say that? Holofernes. That's right. Obviously, I haven't read Judith a lot. Um, Esther is another great example, but the reference could be to someone like David, who was a lowly shepherd boy that overcame Goliath through faith in God. There's a lot of overturning expectations in the hall of faith, right? Whether it's the barren give birth, the weak are made strong, the outnumbered win battle. That's a big theme. God seems to like that. Became valiant in battle. This is a general reference to so many Old Testament saints that fought despite the odds because they knew God fought too. And then we have this phrase, they turned back foreign invaders. Notice the war imagery so common in this list of traits. Faith in God sets one against enemies, just period. Always has been that way. Either within Israel or without. To be faithful is to eventually battle with evil. There's no escape from warfare. Sometimes physical, often in our world, and as it always has been, spiritual warfare. Now, point E. Verse 35a is a bit unusual and stands out in the list of accolades already listed. It says, women receive their dead raised to life again. While definitely a foreshadowing of the victory of Christ and the consolation his mother experienced on Easter morning, there are Old Testament references as well. We have the widow of Zareth, uh, I can never say this, Zarephath, Zarephath, okay, whose son was resurrected by Elijah, and the Shunammite woman, whose son was resurrected by Elisha. Those prophets mirror each other in their ministry often. It's important to note then that while the Hall of Faith mostly contains men in this chapter, women of faith are not excluded. And notice that their faith is set in hope and joy of receiving the dead back to life. What a, what a huge, and so that definitely, that Old Testament theme, women, widows, receiving dead back to life, finds this pinnacle in the Blessed Virgin Mary, who's the tradition says is a widow by the time that, and I think scripture says it, or else Jesus wouldn't have given her to St. John if she was already married, if she had been married to St. Joseph. So she's a widow, Joseph is passed on, and, but her, she receives the dead back from, or receives the, yeah, dead back from death. They're back to life. Really incredible. And what a testament of faith. All right, point F. Thus far, the examples have been of glorious triumphs through faith. But now there is a list of ordeals or trials in which people remained faithful. So there's kind of a turn. It says some were tortured and would not accept deliverance. While the reference could refer to a few situations, right? Think of the three Hebrew boys in the fire, right? That's a torture and they wouldn't accept deliverance uh, or maybe a means of deliverance, that is worship the idol, and you don't have to do this. But scholars think this most likely refers to, especially because of what comes next, the Maccabean times. Now, if you've not read the book of Maccabees, there's two of them in the Apocrypha. There's really four, um, but two would be, I guess you'd call it the canonical Apocrypha. Really good stuff about the intertestament period and the Jewish wars, the Maccabean Wars, when uh, the Roman Empire takes over the nation of Israel and all the suffering that ensues. Well, 
Many Jews endured tortures rather than obey the king's edict to violate God's law. This is when, I'm going to get his name wrong, Epiphanius the fourth. What was it? Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes. He sacrificed a pig on the altar. Mm -hmm. And this is, I mean, that's one way to make a nation of Jews really upset, right? And so so there was a um, a lot of pressure to violate the law. Most famous, though, is the account of seven sons and their mother who were brutally tortured and died for refusing to take one bite of pork because they knew it would violate God's law. And so that you can read that in 2 Maccabees 7. It's a very moving story, but also very, it's a very hard story. Why did they endure this? So that they might obtain a better resurrection. That's the connection. That's kind of an ex- almost, not a word-for-word quote, but an idea-to-idea of what the Maccabean children say to their mother. It's even the youngest who says, fear not, mother, for we will be in the great resurrection because of their faithfulness to God. Faith is hope for things unseen. And the greatest unseen hope that allows one to endure hardships for God is the promise of a universal resurrection that will grant everlasting life. This line also helps us understand the previous one is referring to the Maccabean revolt. You have Maccabees in your Bible, Father, don't you? Would you read 2 Maccabees 7, 9, and 14? We can take a breather while you get there. Stop. Again, a very incredible... Book. I would encourage you all to read it. And it gives a lot of background for what is going on. Jesus' day is interacting with a lot of intertestament period theology and developments that Maccabees would lay out. Yeah, so Maccabees, 2 Maccabees 7 9. Through 14. Well, just read 9 and then just read 14. I guess you could read 9. With his last breath, he said, You accursed friend, fiend, you are depriving us of this present life. But the king of the universe will raise us up to life again forever because we are dying for his laws. Yeah, so there's the resurrection. And then what about verse 14? 14 is, when he was near death, he said, it is my choice to die at the hands of mortals with the hope that God will restore me to life. But for you, there will be no resurrection to life. Mm. So we start to see this This theology of the resurrection that's being really built in the intertestament period, but also that's the hope, right? That's how these people and all of the people that he's referencing endured sufferings and trials and how the Christian church has endured sufferings and trials for 2,000 years. The hope of a resurrection. You might kill my body, but it will be rebuilt by God. Now, the Maccabean martyrs, among others in Israel's past, endured mockery and um, scourging, scoring, and chains and imprisonment. Jeremiah is another good example of one who was repeatedly imprisoned for his ministry and faith in God. And how can we not think of Christ himself, who was beaten, endured shame, imprisoned, and eventually executed brutally? Even our Lord embodies, I would say, in the fullness, all these trials that the writer of Hebrews is bringing out. Zechariah the priest, which is found in 2 Chronicles, was stoned to death, which being stoned is mentioned here, as was Naboth, a layman who refused King Ahab's unjust demands. Stoning does not sound like a fun way to go. It would be normally what they would do, especially in the ancient times, sometimes they would just throw you on the ground and throw rocks at you till you died. 
but sometimes they would also bury you in the ground until only your head was exposed and throw heavy rocks at your head until you were dead. I mean, it's miserable. It was, it's so brutal. It is so rough. Yeah, yeah, the ancient world was rough, man. So, so it talks about people being stoned to death. The prophet Isaiah was actually sown in two, according to Jewish tradition, and that seems to be what he's referencing here. There's a book you can read. You can find it online for free. It's, it's kind of Old Testament. It didn't make the cut for the Old Testament. It's called Martyrdom and Ascension of Isaiah. And, and in it, it gives the account of his death, which is he's sawn in half. Not very fun. Countless prophets and holy men and women were slain by the sword, of course. It talks about people going about in goatskins and being afflicted. Elijah and John the Baptist wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Now, John the Baptist was technically in camel skin, but it is, um, it's the same concept. He kind of embodies Elijah in that way. And the idea here is why did they do that? Because they were driven from society, uh, not just by their own accord, but because society rejected them. Now, the writer offers a brief remark about all those who endured such trials. The world was not worthy of them. I think that's beautiful. They shone as light amidst darkness, which is, that's, that's kind of stealing from St. Paul's phrasing in, second Philipp, uh, in Philippians chapter 2. They revealed the truth, beauty, and goodness of God. The evil world around them was unfit to receive this. And instead of venerating such men and women, they killed them. The world was not worthy of them. The writer returns to his list of trials in, in of his list of trials endured by the faithful by offering one more example. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. This is a reference to those like Elijah and David who fled for their lives and had to endure hiding in unfit conditions. I also just think of the many Christians throughout history who have fled and hid in difficult situations. I think of the Jews in the um, Holocaust who had to flee and lived in hiding in horrible conditions because the world evil was persecuting them. Verses 39 through 40, this is the concluding statement. And it echoes what was said actually in verse 2. So if you go back to verse 2, let's just read it to refresh our memories. For by the elders obtained a good report, meaning a good report being um, a good witness, a good testimony, a good stance before the world. Even though they endured such terrible hardships in faith, they did not receive the promise. They obtained a good testimony, meaning there's a, we now through faith see in them a good witness that they gave, meaning they held firm and witness to the truth of God. The word for obtained a good promise is from the same root as martyr, martyr, witness, bear a good witness, bear a good testimony. So they became martyrs for the faith, witnessing to God's faithfulness and his truth even through their death. The Greek is very specific here. They did not receive the promise. The is almost actuated or um, accented in the Greek. It's, 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 it's what, there's an emphasis on the. So what is the promise? Well, this points towards the climactic promise in Jesus Christ. He's the promise of God through his once for all sacrifice for sin. This doesn't mean that the people of the Old Testament were excluded from this promise or from salvation, but rather in God's mysterious plan, those who belong to the time of shadow, which is what he calls the time before Christ, and we who belong to the time of fulfillment after Christ, we are made perfect together in Christ's work for us. What they had in anticipation 
we have in reality. And we have in fullness what can only be understood in light of their faith and their lives. We complete each other. This is intended to motivate the readers. If so many Old Testament saints remained faithful apart from full knowledge of God's work, right? Think of that Jewish boy saying to, his, saying to those people, you wretched fiend, you will kill me, but I will be resurrected. Other than the weird instances with Elijah and Elisha where a man was raised from the dead, they've never seen God work the resurrection of the dead for his people. It's a complete statement of faith, and it's still faithful for us, but what have we witnessed in our hearts and in the history of the church? The resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ is the great promise of the universal resurrection, that evil will be undone, that pain will be no more, that all the bad things will become untrue. That's the promise of the resurrection. And so how much more so should we as the church, this is the writer of Hebrews' point, how much more so should we endure trials and hardships and hold firm to faith, having the knowledge of Christ and his sacrifice and his resurrection, if those in the Old Testament who lacked that knowledge were able to hold firm all the more. They remained faithful amidst trials, tribulations, sufferings, and persecutions, even though they had not tasted the heavenly gift. I just want to stop there before I give a little application. Any, any reflections or comments or thoughts? What's your comment? Yeah, well, the writer is ultimately God, so it's the same person. That's right. Yeah, good thought. Any other thoughts or comments about, as we kind of look at, uh, conclude this great chapter in the book of Hebrews, its application, how it relates to the rest of the, the letter? Well, I just think that the list, you know, sometimes we read these things and without knowing the background, you think, well, I can't like that. Mm. And then when you know the background, you recognize that all of these people were sinners. Oh, yeah, big time. And so this is intended to let us know as well is that our sin is covered by Christ. Mm -hmm. So it's not really an excuse for us not being saints. Mm, that's right. You no, know, no, that's really, very true. We really do need no, to all, live and that way. All sinners. All saints are sinners. There's no, there's no, like they all are. We're all fallen short. Like for Christ, we, we would all be, I know, and that's kind of, I think, part of his... A big point of his letter earlier was, if it wasn't for the sacrifice of Christ, we're all really up a creek without a paddle. Because the, the blood of bulls and goats, it does nothing. But these, these rites and rituals were meant to point towards Jesus. This, his sacrifice actually can affect in us true change on the spiritual, the real level of your sins being undone, sanctification, things like this. Only him. Only him. Patriarchs and heroes that he's mentioned are more, uh, they're very flawed people. Oh, incredibly. Incredibly. And that's, I think, where we can gain hope is what's interesting in this is the highlights he gives are the positives in faith. They're not their own achievements. It's not Abraham was a very intelligent man and learned many languages. I made that up. But, you know, like, it was all their feats done. By, Jesus, or by, by faith in, in, in God. God was working in them and through them. And then what's, I think, covered or kind of skipped over is all their faults, purposefully. 
And I think that what an encouragement that is to a group of people who are standing on the verge of really apostasy. And probably some of them have already messed up a lot. And he's holding up these Old Testament saints and saying, look, we all know they're, they're messed up. Abraham tried almost every chance he got to mess up God's promise. Like if you read the book of Genesis, it's really funny to me when he's called the father of faith. I did my undergrad thesis on the book of Genesis and studying Abraham was like, this man's the, the father of unfaith. Like he is so unfaithful, constantly trying to outwit God and make the promises work on his own. But what he's remembered as is that faith in God and that God's grace is what covers his multitude of sins and all of our sins. And that is what carries us into eternity. Our, our sins are cast into the depths of the sea. And what a beautiful example this is. And what a beautiful encouragement for the people of Hebrews who are struggling at that moment. Yeah. And it's a reminder that God keeps his promises. Mm. He kept his promises no matter That's the right. lapses of, and lack of all these people. And That's so right. For us, it's the same. That's right. He keeps his promises, and we must keep that in front of us at all times. That's really that's, that does go up. Yeah, and that, that we can't thwart his promises. It's almost like every person in here tried, but it never, yeah. But it, his promises came true, despite it. It reminds me of, of course, uh, a Lord of the Rings reference, because why wouldn't it? Is, um, uh, you'll figure out, Joseph, I love Lord of the Rings. It is in, in Lord of the Rings, actually, it's not in the Lord of the Rings. It's, in, it's probably in an obscure book that only the nerds who really like Lord of the Rings. Thank you. Right? Yes, is, um, it's called the Cimmerillion, which is Tolkien's, if the Lord of the Rings, the Lord of the Rings is the New Testament, the Cimmerillion is the Old Testament. It's all the backstory and all this mythological stuff. And the opening chapters, the opening 11 pages is one of the most beautiful things I've read outside of scripture. And I keep, I keep asking Bishop Chad if we could add it to the Bible. It's called the, um, it's called the Eindelindale, and it's the, it's the creation account of Tolkien's world. And it's very Christian in nature. I mean, he doesn't use the word God, he, but there is a, there's a high God. His name's Eru, the one. And what he does is he creates angels, and he wants the angels to make music, and that that music is what is going to be incorporated into creation. He lets them be sub-creators with him. It's really beautiful. But there's one who's the devil figure, Melkor. What Melkor does is he makes music out of tune with the rest of them, his own music. And, but he brings it in, and it's and God, the, the high God, he says, um, he's, I can't remember the quote exactly. It's something to the effect of what you thought would be discord, I am going to accept, and even out of your music will come my glory. And so it's this beautiful piece of weaving together even Satan's most diabolical attempts to thwart God, God says, good luck. And what do we see then in the crucifixion? Satan's most diabolical attempt to thwart God is the actual means God uses for our salvation. And that's what I see a lot in these stories is these people who have tried, who, who mess up and fail, God uses that in his infinite wisdom to bring him more glory, more honor, more worship. So quickly, let's just look at this section called application. The Old Testament, the writer of Hebrews purposefully limits his hall of faith, heroes, to those in the Old Testament. He wants to urge his readers who have the full vision of God's salvation's plan to remain faithful by showing examples of those who only dimly saw God's glory. However, we would be wrong to believe that such a list of faithful heroes stops with the Old Testament or even with the New Testament. By faith, Mary received the word of the angel and became the mother of God. By faith, Peter endured beating and crucifixion upside down. 
By faith, John was boiled in oil and exiled to Patmos. By faith, Ignatius coaxed the lions to eat him up. By faith, Athanasius was exiled six times. By faith, thousands of African Americans fled from slavery. By faith, Russian clergy were shot, hanged, and beheaded by the USSR. By faith, Egyptian Christians refused to renounce Christ and on a live video stream were killed by ISIS. By faith, hundreds in the USA lose their jobs annually because they refuse to give in to the progressive sexual agenda of the day. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of all the faithful heroes of Christ's church throughout the ages. That hall of faith is continuing to extend even to this day. And I think that, oh gosh, who said it? It's some early, it's some Catholic saint from the early 1900s. I'm going to mess this up. I can't remember who said it, but he said the greatest tragedy in all of life is to not become a saint. And what he means by that is for us to just think that, the, that our end goal is to just kind of live life and mosey on through. But our goal in life, and this is the writer of Hebrews' point, is that we should make it onto that list. And only through Christ can we, and through Christ we will. Amen? Amen. 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 To the altar.